Then we will no longer be infants, tossed back and forth by the waves, and blown here and there by every wind of teaching, and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is, Christ. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Amen, amen. The precious blood of Christ. No shame, no guilt, no death. Good morning, Sojourn. Uh, Thank you for having me. I am uh, uh, really honored to be here. Uh, I want to first and foremost thank your pastor, Pastor Jamal Williams. Uh, When I met him uh, earlier this year, I was struck, honestly struck, by his uh, humility and his kindness. And uh, I appreciate the courage that he has to invite me to talk about a very important topic of this morning, um, but a tough topic, uh, which is Christian political engagement. And so thank you very much, uh, Pastor. I I am very grateful to be here uh, and speak to you all today. Now, as I understand it, we have some political diversity in this church, and I think that's a good thing. Uh, Our shared biblical principles should always be more important than our political persuasions, Uh, and that's not always the case. But I tell you, as we go into this political season, understand that politics is not an ultimate thing. It's never worth losing a brother or a sister over politics. We have a greater commission than that, although I I believe that the Bible has and the gospel has political implications. It is not an ultimate thing. So do not lose your brother or your sister over politics. As we go into 2020 and beyond, Christians on both sides of the political spectrum will need to ask themselves, will we be accomplices or cross-bearers? Will we add to the tribalism and division Or will we be models of civility and reconciliation? I will ask you today to walk with me into the tension, right? Walk with me as we put both sides of the political spectrum through biblical scrutiny. Now, I ask you to have have patience because you may hear your side getting critiqued first. And just hold on because the other side's coming as well. But there is a tension here that we need to address. Now, I won't tell you which party to support, obviously, or who to vote for, but I do believe that the Bible provides believers with a framework for Christian political engagement. Understand that when we as Christians go into the political arena and we turn a blind eye to injustice or to the immorality on our side of the aisle, we see the high moral ground, and we can't reclaim it just for the issues that suit us. We can't decide to be Christian on abortion and Machiavellian on racial injustice. We can't be Christian on poverty and postmodern, meaning that there is no one truth when it comes to things like sexuality. So as you enter into this conversation, enter into politics, ask yourself, who are you and what do you stand for? Too often, Christians, we find our identity and our political affiliation, and consequently, our political affiliation becomes religious in nature, making us the converts instead of the evangelists, making us the perfect accomplices. 
When we walk out of the doors of of the church into the political arena to weigh in on policy debates or cast our vote, we often take on an alternative self. We transform into staunch progressives or staunch conservative tribesmen with an entirely different, if not contrary, ethic. No longer constrained by the compassion or the conviction of the gospel, we are free to disregard the needs of other image bearers or dispose of unpopular convictions. We become accomplices when we separate our faith from our politics. Let's read Ephesians 4, 15, uh, Ephesians 4 verses 14 through 15 again. Paul says, then we will no longer be infants, tossed back and forth by the waves, blown here and there by every wind of teaching, and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is, Christ. Again, today's subject is going to be about engaging the sociopolitical space with biblical fidelity, and I won't hide the ball. The lesson today, primarily based on biblical doctrine and also social proof, is that we can't engage faithfully without love and truth. To put it another way, we cannot engage faithfully unless we have a framework that talks about justice and moral order. Justice and moral order. Yes, even as a matter of common grace, there can be no redemptive outcome, no restorative result without that combination. Therefore, the theories that we embrace and the tactics that we'll use must fit in that gospel-centered framework. As we search for answers to the problems that afflict our society today, I'm afraid that too many Christians are being tossed back and forth by the waves of false cultural doctrine and blown here and there by the winds of flawed pop culture prescriptions. We get exposed to a trending topic or a fancy uh, theory in academia, and we begin to put our faith in perspectives and ideologies that may sound good or may seem to justify us or may flatter us, but don't actually work, that can show no proof of concept, and more importantly, simply aren't biblical. But yet and still, based on the cultural identity of the messenger or the political party of origin, we will follow that which is completely unsubstantiated. On the other hand, the gospel of Jesus Christ produces results. First and foremost, it is key to salvation, but even if you haven't opened up your, opened up your Bible to receive that revelation, if you do outside research, you will find that it can lay claim to tangible social renewal that can be observed by all. So when it comes to political engagement, if the postmodernist will have their say, if the rugged individualist will have their say, if the hyperwoke identitarian will have their say and give their two cents, then the people of God best not repeat them. But when we do speak on it, the Bible says that we must speak the truth in love. Let me start by providing you with a a historical example. I want to talk about one of the most effective uh, social change agents possibly in history. 
His father was a hardworking cobbler or had been a serf. You see, serfs lived and worked on land that was owned by others. They were somewhat like sharecroppers. They were peasants at the lowest rung of their society's oppressive hierarchy. His family lived on beans and bread alone. With little health care, this people suffered from things like high infant mortality rates. As a child, he was fragile and weak. It said that he had terribly webbed feet and that he caught every sickness that came to town. Growing up, his parents noticed, though, that he had a special love for flowers and music. But everything wasn't flowery and melodic in his home. Due in part to the social circumstances, our freedom fighter's father became manic with grief. And he began to abuse alcohol. Because his alcoholism got so severe, his hands started to shake. And started to shake, shake so bad that he could no longer sew shoes. He would also become violent, beating his family on a regular basis. The family would become homeless because he wasn't working, and they wandered from place to place for 10 years, a decade. When smallpox devastated the peasants in his town, as usual, he caught it too. He would survive, but for the rest of his life, he would have pockmarks covering his face. Throughout all of this, somehow, our freedom fighter maintained a serious desire to learn, and his mother was determined to, to make sure that he received an education. He would eventually get into a church school, and he would become the school's most outstanding pupil, despite being the poorest boy in the school. But as he came of age, he started to look around him, and he started to notice what was happening to his people how they suffered, the oppression, the exploitation that they endured. He would develop a deep desire to change their circumstances. One particular incident changed the course of his life. There were three peasants from the same ethnic background as he who were near starvation. And so since they were about to die of starvation, they ended up stealing one of the cows from one of the rich landowners. After they stole this cow, a bunch of things went down and they were hunted down like animals and hung publicly to send a message to the peasant class. And the message was simple, that, that the social order would be maintained at all costs. At all costs. He witnessed this as an adolescent and it said that on that very day, a revolutionary was born. He'd go to seminary, and he was considered an outstanding poet and singer. But he would never finish seminary or focus on song or uh, poetry because the struggle, the struggle summoned him. He'd commit his life to the cause of social justice and, the people, and people's freedom. He didn't have a lot of material goods, and he rarely ever even had a place to call home, but he would put his freedom and his life on the line every day for decades. This once fragile and weak young boy would go on to be known as the Man of Steel, and he would become the leader of his country. His name, you ask, was, was Joseph Stalin the Russian dictator, who would murder, by some estimates, 60 million people. 
He murdered far more people than Hitler. And he thought he was justified all along because he was liberating the oppressed, because he was fighting the bad guy, but never took the chance to notice that he had become the bad guy. He had allowed his love for his people to become hate for others. And he dehumanized his enemies to the point where killing them was justified. His initial motivation was justice. But he had abandoned his biblical values in his teens, and he had started to view Christianity as weak and insufficient for his cause. The moral of the story is, number one, narratives can be deceptive. And that even well-intended justice-seeking can become hate-filled tragedy when detached from a biblical root. Worldly love becomes hate. Virtue becomes vice when it's not anchored in the word. Joseph Stalin and his atrocities are the extreme but logical conclusion of where some of the ideologies that we follow could lead. We have Christians embracing perspectives that convince us to call entire groups of people stupid and irredeemable. When a young man of color is lying in the streets dead, some of us look for reasons not to sympathize. We look for reasons not to mourn with the mourning, not to fully recognize his human dignity because of mistakes he might have made or even having a criminal record. That is not God's way. We need to check ourselves and check our ideologies. The conversation about engaging politics to better society inevitably must address what teachings we will follow and what methods we'll employ to achieve our objectives. Today, many Christians have been seduced by ideologies that are made by human hands and can't withstand biblical scrutiny. And the Bible speaks to this. If we go back to Ephesians 4, we see that Apostle Paul is talking to the church of Ephesus, which was known as the persevering church. Ephesus had endured a lot of suffering and also had false prophets who were trying to infiltrate the church with false teachings. Earlier in Ephesians 4, Paul talks about being mature. Now, when he talks about being mature here, he's talking about growth in mind and understanding, growth in knowledge of the truth, and growth in moral character. So he says that when we mature or when we grow in mind and understanding or when we grow in knowledge of the truth and and moral character, then we will no longer be infants. When he says infants here, he's talking about we will no longer be so malleable. We won't be so impressionable, tossed back and forth by every wave, blown here and there by every wind of teaching. What Paul is trying to say here is that mature Christians are not easily deceived. These these false teachers wouldn't be able to indoctrinate mature Christians because mature Christians know what they stand for. Regardless of what false teachings may be prominent, regardless of what's being said out in pop culture or in popular opinion, regardless of how much they are suffering, a mature Christian should be able to speak the truth in love. Christians ought to be able to understand the importance of not letting our circumstances dictate who we are. Not letting who's in power or out of power dictate how we respond to our neighbors. You see, everyone today wants to uh, claim the civil rights movement. 
All these new movements are supposedly heirs of the civil rights movement. But it becomes clear to me when I listen more and more that many of them don't even understand some of the primary guiding principles of the civil rights movement. Yes, the movement was about changing systems. Yes, it was about changing institutions. Yes, it was about changing policy. But there was a principle that was even more important than that. And the principle was that no matter what you were going through, no matter how hard it got, no matter how much you were hurting, that you could never allow your opposition to have a negative impact on your spirit. No matter what you were going through, you could never allow your enemy to negatively impact your spirit. You could win the policy battle. You could win. You could change systems. You could change institutions. But if you lost the spirit of the movement, then you lost everything. See, everyone wants to talk about Dr. Martin Luther King, but nobody wants to talk about how his life and his death proved that it is better to die than to hate your enemy. Christians must always be able to speak the truth in love. Now, I want to be clear. Political and social ideologies are not all bad. They can help us flesh out our ideas. They can help us understand what's going on. You can decide whether being progressive or conservative is best in a given situation. But one thing I can tell you about both sides is that they are not the gospel, meaning that they are fallible. We have to stop defending our political party and our ideology as if they are inerrant and infallible because they are not. The truth is most prominent ideologies often separate love and truth as if they're somehow in conflict or at odds or somehow mutually exclusive. One side of the political spectrum is supposedly all about love, while the other claims to be all about truth, and Christians are told to choose between the two. Well, Sojourn, I come to you today telling you that that is a false choice. A Christian can choose a political party. There's nothing wrong with that. But a Christian cannot choose between love and truth because they're not in conflict. They're interdependent. Tim Keller put it this way. He said that love without truth is sentimentality, meaning that it's overly emotional. It's, it's lacking substance. There's no form to it. it. It can be licentious. And truth without love is harshness. It's mean. It's uncompassionate. Truth without love can become violence. These ideologies tend to be either lacking in love or lacking in truth. And as a result, when it comes to political ideology, to be conservative or to be progressive at all times and on every single issue is not only intellectually lazy and easily manipulated, I would say that it's not faithful. Ideological conservatism and theological conservatism are not always the same thing. The far left's conception of social justice is not always consistent with a biblical understanding. If we're conservative, when the issue calls for change or the dismantling of old prejudice structures, then we are helping to maintain injustice. If we're progressive, when the moment calls for the regeneration or the preservation of moral order, then we are complicit in society's rejection of truth. But what we do today is say, well, I don't like those racist Pharisees, so I'll just be a Sadducee. Or I don't like the squishy morals of those Sadducees, so I'll just be 
a Pharisee. When Jesus condemned both perspectives, a Christian cannot simply follow behind an ideological tribe. We must be supplying both of them with heavy doses of love and truth if we're truly interested in social renewal rather than just being self-interested. Now, we're giving you this framework. We're talking about this love and truth framework that we have to maintain love and maintain truth, maintain justice and maintain moral order at the same time. That's this gospel-centered framework. So let's talk about the love side of this equation first. It should pain us, Sojourn, that other communities can legitimately question um, whether or not we love them or to legitimately question whether the Christian community will treat them fairly. It should pain us. Now, love doesn't guarantee agreement or affirmation, but it does call us to be concerned about the well-being of others. When others, have, when others have cause to believe that we're unconcerned or uncompassionate, that is a problem. You can understand systematic theology, I hope you do. You can memorize the entire Bible, I hope that's something that you can do. But if you're unloving and uncompassionate, then you're not being Christ-like. This is where generally, these are some general statements, this is where some conservatives run into problems, run into trouble. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 2 says, If I have the gift, gift of prophecy and can fathom all memories and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains, but I do not have love, I am nothing. We've been commanded to love our neighbors as ourselves. And you cannot do that if you're not willing to advocate for your neighbor's well-being and to protect their human dignity. That's really all a biblical, a true definition, a true biblical definition of social justice should be. According to the great commandment, if you want justice for yourself, if you would seek justice for you and yours, then you must want justice and seek justice for your neighbor as well. If you truly love your neighbor, you will be socially concerned about your neighbor. And that social concern won't just be a sentiment. It'll be active. It'll involve self-sacrifice. See, there was this major debate, especially in 2018, about whether or not Christians should be engaged in social justice. And I really don't care about the semantics of it. I'm not here to defend the type of social justice that is not biblical. That's not what I'm here to do. But I don't believe that there's anybody in this building today or any Christian or anyone else who doesn't believe in social justice. I don't believe them. Now, some of us may limit it just to the people that we care about and deny it to others because it's an in, 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 inconvenience, but none of us uh, believe that social justice isn't necessary, even if we say that. And let me give you an example of what I mean. No one in here today is going to sit around and allow someone in their family to be unjustly imprisoned if there's something they can do about it. No one's going to do that. No one would allow their children to be mistreated at the school. No one would allow their children to drink lead-poisoned water if there was something that they could do to prevent it. Why? Because they believe in social justice. Because they believe that there's a certain standard by which everyone should be treated based on their human dignity, based on the Imago Dei. We all believe that. 
But what we have to realize is that justice is harder than charity. There is a reason that people will give you charity long before they give you justice. Charity is good. Please keep giving charity, but charity can be distant. Charity allows the giver to stay in control of how much they give and what they give up and how they're impacted by their giving. Justice, on the other hand, is either fully given or not given at all. It's a God standard. It threatens to disrupt the very systems and social arrangements that benefit us. At some point, justice demands a conflict with self-interest that charity does not demand. It dismantles the very podium and platforms where we place our pride, where we stand atop of to look down on others. There is no social renewal. There is no faithful engagement without love and social concern. You will only create a harsh, hypocritical society that excludes and marginalizes certain groups. Love and social concern are a must. Justice is a must, and justice is not just a lack of injustice. Justice is not a lack of anything. It's proactive. It's substantive. But let's look at the other side of this conversation, the truth and moral order. So we just talked about love, social concern, and justice. Let's talk about truth and moral order, which is the other side of this framework. In Ephesians 4.15, the term speak the truth comes from the Greek word that refers to teaching or professing the truth as it relates to doctrine. This is not subjective. Everyone does not have their own separate truth or their own personal truth. To speak the truth means to profess right doctrine or to be honest in how we recount events. We worship a God of moral order. We can see it from Genesis on. God's truth provides us with direction and structure. In an ever-changing world, God's truth is unchanging. Now, I know that we're in an urban setting, and in an urban setting, a lot of people pride themselves on being progressive, and that's fine. But you have to understand where progressivism, too, just like conservatism, falls short. And this is where progressives get in trouble. Now, generally, when somebody says they're progressive, that's a fairly ambiguous word if you really think about it. But generally, what people are saying is, I want to move past our problems. I want to build. I want to fix things. I believe not sitting in injustice or not sitting in institutions that are negative. Let's move on. Let's grow. Let's do better. That's generally what someone means when they say that they're progressive. But being progressive is not the answer to every situation. Okay? If you're, and then let me give you an example. Here's one, one way to think about it. If you're on a cliff, you're standing on the edge of a cliff to progress or to even lean forward probably isn't such a good idea. It's also a bad idea if you're headed in the wrong direction already. Sometimes God is asking us to stand firm on his word or preserve things and institutions that he has already established as good. See, modern thought tells us that we can improve on everything, that everything can be, can be improved, but God's word cannot be improved. Here's, a, here's another way to think about it. 
Think about God's word like it's a Picasso, right? You cannot improve a Picasso. You can only deface a Picasso. If you go up to a masterpiece with your paintbrush and your eraser, and I don't care how great of an artist you think you are, if you add anything to that masterpiece or you take anything away from that masterpiece, you have not made that masterpiece better. You have defaced it. You have made it worse. And that's one way to think about God's truth. It cannot be improved. God doesn't need our counsel. He doesn't need us to improve or evolve his truth. Sometimes what seems good and pleasant to us is destructive. Sometimes God is calling us to obedience and self-denial. And again, this is where progressives run into trouble. Because it's difficult to to talk about obedience and self-denial or the denial of self when you buy into the societal ethic that says that individual expression is sovereign. If individual expression is sovereign, then there is no room for for self-denial. There is no room for obedience to somebody else outside of you if you are sovereign. This is called, this philosophy is called expressive individualism. And the tenets of this modern religion say that the ultimate good is for one to follow their inclinations and preferences as long as they get consent when necessary. Under this belief system, each individual is God and they create their own truth based on what they feel. To suggest that sometimes things that we feel are out of line with reality or out of line with truth or at the end of the day will hurt society or or hurt our families or hurt our community is heresy. And what we need to ask ourselves is can a Christian fully embrace this philosophy and be faithful? It might be flattering. It might seem like it justifies you, but you will not get an endorsement of that here. You won't hear an endorsement here. Even if you only want to read the New Testament, even if you only want to read the red letters, you won't find Jesus endorsing a human-centered, self-dictated truth or reality. It's not there. This book tells us to die to self. This book tells us not to be conformed to the world. This book talks about being crucified with Christ. Over and over again, this book consistently talks about self-sacrifice, not self-indulgence. Justin, are you saying that I can't be a progressive politically? I'm not saying that. But when in conflict, your Christianity must override your progressivism just like it must override your, uh, your uh, conservatism because conservatism and progressivism are flawed. We are here to renew what man has distorted and to preserve what God has established as good. There can be no social renewal if we exchange truth for confusion and moral order for chaos. Jesus provided us with a model for social renewal that was concerned about marginalized individuals in society and we must follow course. He didn't, but he didn't simply patronize them with sentimentality. He attended to people with love and truth. If you go to John 8, the case of the adulterous woman who was about to be stoned, he told her, go. That go was liberating her from these hypocrites who were intent on hurting her. 
Him saying go was releasing her from this societal bondage, but he did not stop there. He also said sin no more because the other half of the truth was that she would never completely be free until her heart changed, until she turned from her sin. Similarly, in John 5, the lame man was told to stand up and walk. He was later told to stop sinning. The woman wasn't only a victim of her external bondage, but also her own internal bondage. The man's infirmity wasn't only an outward disability. There was another matter that had to be dealt with by inward transformation. There's a similar theme, if you think about it, in Exodus. God delivered the Hebrews from Pharaoh's hands, but he didn't say go off and live happily ever after. He gives them the law. He demands their obedience. He chastises them. It shows us that yes, God is a liberator, but he's also a father that requires moral order from the liberated. He brings wrath upon the oppressor and calls his children to self-denial so they won't become the oppressor. But too many Christians have embraced an ideology that is keen on identifying how others have sinned against us while blinding us to how we're being devoured by our own sin. If the adulterous woman were here today, half the church would be saying, stone her for she had sinned. The other half would be saying, slay queen, live your truth. And both would be leaving her imprisoned. Both would be leaving her in chains. This was not the pedagogic creed of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. He taught us that the unjust and disobedient would receive God's wrath and that Christian love is unconditional. But it's not without discernment or critique. There is a way that seems right to man, but ends in death. It's time to tighten up our philosophies, methodologies, and ideologies and adhere to the gospel standard. And I'll conclude with this. Many of you may have heard of the Rwandan genocide between the Hutu and the Tutsi. Over a million people were slaughtered. Afterwards, once President Paul Kagame took over, he understood that an exchange of power was not going to be enough to prevent that from happening again. He understood that he had to seek peace through reconciliation. That was the only way that it worked. This meant the unthinkable, though. It meant that people had to live in peace with those who had slaughtered their families. Rosaria Bunkendaye's husband and four children were murdered while she laid beneath a pile of corpses with maggots infesting her skull wound. She sat down with her family's murderer and forgave him. When President Paul Kagame was asked how this was even possible, all he could say was that Christianity did it. We're following behind ideologies and leaders who are telling us to hate our neighbor because of policy differences and their brokenness. While Rosaria, who became a Christian, thanked God for the blessing to reconcile with the man who had killed her family because she understood that it was, that it was worse to live with hatred in her heart than to hand it over to God and extend grace to a sinner. President Paul Kagame was Tutsi. He gave the Hutu murder of Rosaria's family an abbreviated sentence to assist with the reconciliation process. 
Once the murderer was released, he said that I was a murderer, so I thought that once I was released, since the other side was in control, that I would just be murdered too. He said that he had no idea of the expression or no expectation of forgiveness. He had no idea that he could be forgiven for the things that he had done. But if you listen to his testimony, he said that somehow this Jesus character got these people who would never see their families again, who would never embrace their families again. Somehow this Jesus man convinced them to forgive me. Somehow this guy named Jesus gave people who would always be traumatized, who would always be broken because of what I had done. Somehow this Jesus man convinced them to break bread with me. And he was amazed at this amazing grace. We sing about amazing grace, but but does that amazing grace extend to your opposition? Does it extend to the person that hurts you? Does it extend to the person that put a policy in place that victimizes your people? I pray that it does. I pray that you go forth and live and work through a gospel-centered framework for engagement. I pray that you decide to be a cross-bearer instead of an accomplice. God bless you. Let's end with prayer. Dear Lord, thank you for this day. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your instruction, which has given us a way forward. Thank you for being the light to our feet. Thank you for giving us a way to glorify you and knowing that we do all of this to glorify you. Not because we make the change, not because our votes are going to save people, but because you save people. Because you have given us the ability to love you and to be with you, and we thank you. You have given us the ability to to defeat death, and we love you for that, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Let's praise God for the message and the messenger. What a a powerful, powerful, powerful word, a word that uh, Christians need to hear uh, all across this nation. Thank you so much for taking the time to come out to us, brother. And uh, ever since the first time I met you, I knew that the Lord was stirring something up uh, for our church in in you. And I I feel like the Lord just gave birth to something that's going to help us to to build upon. So thank you. Amen. Thanks for having me. Amen. Uh, we just want to take a few minutes here to ask Justin some, some questions uh, just to follow up uh, with your sermon. And so the first question is this, uh, and you answered this in, in your sermon in some ways, but uh, should Christians be politically engaged? And, uh, and what scriptures do you have to support your answer? Yeah, my answer would be yes. Uh, to different levels. We know that we're a body, and so we work as a body. Not everybody's going to be in the middle of everything political. But if you think of it this way, if you look at the great commandment, if you look at John 13, 34, to love your neighbor like you love yourself means that you protect your neighbor. It means that you look out for their interests. And once we understand that politics touches every aspect of society, so there's really not an aspect of society that politics doesn't touch. What that should tell us is not that politics should be a master, but that politics should be a tool. It's a tool that we use to pursue and to be obedient to the great commandment to make sure that those who are poor do have food to eat, uh, to make sure that uh, the unborn are given a chance to live. These are things that are hard, if not impossible, to do without politics. 
And so I think the struggle that a lot of people have is we see Christians go into politics and allow it to become a master. But I, I think if we look at the Bible, whether it is Daniel and all the things that he did through politics, uh, whether it is Esther and the thing, how she used her, her uh, influence in politics to save lives, uh, over and over again, we see a relationship between what's going on with the, with the body and what's going on in politics. And so it's not bad. We just have to know who we are. Um, and we have to know that framework to continue to do it to glorify God. If we do it for our own ends, if we do it as a means of uh, self-interest, then that's where I think we go wrong. But I think over and over again, if we're going to love our neighbor, this is a tool to do that, and we should, we should, we should do it. Fantastic. Mm-hmm. Uh, what is the danger of not admitting our side may have weaknesses on any given issue? Yeah. Uh, and as a, as a pastor, and along with our other pastors, this is something that burdens us, right? Sure. You talk about how uh, a political sphere or side can often become what we, what we worship. It's the kingdom that we're a part of, right? Mm-hmm. And so what danger do you see if, if someone is so engulfed in a side that they, uh, that they can no longer see their own weaknesses of their own party? Yeah, the, the danger is being unfaithful, and the danger is almost committing atrocity. So I give that Stalin example because most of the times when we think about monsters in history, we think about somebody who came to the world for malicious intent, mm-hmm. that their whole time they were trying to be... Most monsters in history didn't start off as malicious. They actually started off with an interest or with an interest group that they were really passionate about, and one day they decided to do anything to accomplish that. Um, And when when we know that there's people around like that, and when we don't say, hey, yeah, I may be more progressive, but I do see the issues with progressivism, we end up pushing false teaching, right? We end up pushing things that just aren't biblical because we're so caught up in it. And one way I put it, and you alluded to this, was our political affiliation becomes religious in nature. We have to understand that ideas and ideologies proselytize. They want converts, right? Every ideology is meant and and is trying to be um, uh, to persuade us to be a convert to that. And so what Christians have to be able to do is say, I can take some things from conservatism. There's some things that that make sense that do align, but I have to leave the stuff that doesn't. Not only leave it, I have to speak up against the stuff that doesn't align with, with Christianity. Third, uh, what does it look like to balance being a peacemaker as well as being called to be uh, Christians um, and that advocates for truth and justice? Yeah. So, so I think we, we definitely go. It's, it's all about your tone and what your, what your objective is, what you're trying to accomplish. You know, for, so for, to me, being a peacemaker means what we're doing, we're going out to try to create peace. We're going out to help people. That doesn't mean, and, and people get this mixed up, even when we talk about civility, right, being civil and talking to people, I think that's right. That doesn't mean that you don't challenge, yeah. right? We see uh, the prophet Amos in the Bible. He makes a very serious challenge because there are lives on the line, right, because there's a lot of things that are going on. So while we go out and I think we should be civil and we should follow the rules and we should do what we, we can to help people and not go out being aggressive or malicious, that doesn't mean that there won't be conflict. Right? That doesn't mean that someone's going to say no when somebody's doing something that's taking innocent lives or whatever. And we have to stand up and say, I'm not going to go for that. Uh, the civil rights movement is a perfect example of being civil, of being, uh, you know, being as kind as you can, but understanding when the conflict comes, Christianity is also about courage. And you can't replace, there's no way to replace or get rid of Christian courage. Christians at some point are going to have to be courageous, especially when it comes to protecting and defending God's truth and, and, and love. 
Well, brother, you modeled that courage today by equally critiquing and stepping on everybody's toes at some point. <laughs> so we appreciate that, man. God bless you. Thanks We're for praying for your ministry. Thanks for having me. So Justin has provided some next steps for us and, uh, and some, some, some resources that he believes will be helpful. So if you could want to take your phones out and take a picture of the screen, we'll also make sure uh, via social media that we uh, put this on blast uh, later on tonight. Uh, also, next year in June 2020, Justin has a book called Christianity and Politics uh, by the Ann Campaign that's coming out. It is going to be... Uh, uh, endorsed by InterVarsity uh, Christian uh, Fellowship, Ivy Press. And so we want to encourage you to check that out um, as well. Every Sunday, we gather together as a people from all sorts of backgrounds and uh, who may lean certain ways politically, but we gather together as the people of God, knowing that our unity and love for one another is what's going to speak to this world. And here at Sojourn, we believe that the Lord has called us to be a burning movement of disciples, filling up this entire city with the gospel of Jesus Christ, united by his blood and in his kingdom. And what helps us to do that and to remember that is by us taking communion together um, each week, week in and week out. Here at Sojourn, we take a piece of bread and we uh, break it. We dip it in wine or juice. The wine is marked by twine, whatever your conscience permits. Those of you who are in the front, you can come to the front to cake to take communion. Those in the back, you can go to the back. Gluten-free communion is to my left. And if you are struggling in your heart right now uh, with maybe something that was said uh, in particular and uh, you're tempted to justify or to uh, do away with everything else you heard, I pray that you would just take time to examine your own heart and to remember that Jesus Christ did not come uh, riding a donkey or uh, or an elephant and, and promoting a specific political party, but he came uh, to preach his kingdom. And he died to inaugurate that kingdom in the hearts of his people. So let's focus on his crucifixion, his life, his death, his burial, and his resurrection. Let's pray. Gracious Father, thank you so much for our time together this morning. Thank you for your grace and allowing us to, to hear a word from Ephesians chapter 4, a word that promotes a truth and love. I pray, Father God, that you, uh, as we take communion, would remind us of what you're doing throughout this world, throughout uh, this, this, the earth, uh, that you are in the process of making all things new. Help us, Father God, to uh, submit to your kingdom, to your lordship. Help us to deny self Help us, Father God, to be uh, those who promote justice. Help us to be wholehearted Christians, Lord, in a, in a world that is, uh, is against you. Help us not to be conformed to the image or the pattern of this world, but to be renewed uh, through our mind. Thank you for your sacrifice, Jesus. Thank you for what you've done for us. In Christ's name, amen. Hi, I'm Jamal Williams, lead pastor of Sojourn in Midtown. Thanks for listening. At Midtown, we value gospel-centeredness, biblical faithfulness, transformative relationships, diverse fellowship, creativity in the arts, and relentless mission. For more sermons, info about our church, visit sojournchurch.com slash midtown.